Uh, would you just join me in a word of prayer? God, thank you just for the opportunity to gather, to worship. I know personally I'm never going to take that for granted again after the pandemic and having to worship behind computer screens and TV screens. Just what a gift it is to gather with other believers. God, we pray that tonight, just for good weather, that our hearts would be encouraged as believers from eight, nine, ten different churches come together just to lift up your name. And God, we thank you that in you we are united. And so, God, I just pray that right now, this morning, you just speak through me just to communicate the message that you would have for this church as next Sunday they start this new chapter with Pastor Rich and how exciting that is. God, I just pray that you continue to lead and guide Maple Grove Covenant Church to continue to be faithful, to love their neighbors, to serve their neighbors, to go make a difference and to, to live it out. In your name we pray. Amen. I love good storytelling. I love good stories. And uh, today we're going to dive into a parable that really asks the question, who is my neighbor? And that's a question I think a lot of us ask. And I'm going to dive into a well-known parable that I think a lot of us have heard before. But hopefully we're going to look at it in a little bit different way. (laughs) E.T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love storytelling. I love movies. I love good books. That's I've always been growing up loving that kind of stuff. I like to tell my kids bedtime stories, and we kind of have this, this story I've been working on with them. Maybe someday I'll write it down if I can avoid copyright infringement, because I like to take little pieces of Star Wars and Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and I mix it all together in a story with their names. And just, I love telling stories. My wife and I joke a lot. Like, I'm always like, Kristen, when you're telling bedtime stories, you got to make sure you have a character who wants something, overcomes conflict to get it. And she's like, I'm just telling a story about a lizard who's kind or whatever it is, you know. And so we, we talk about this. I love good stories. And really good storytelling, on the surface, you think it's about one thing, but it's actually about something else. E.T., on first glance, you think it's about a movie about a kid who meets an alien. No, it's actually E.T. is about divorce. It's about a heartbreaking family who's crippled, and they can't really move on. And, and this encounter with this person who's different, E.T., kind of leads their family into healing. Star Wars, we're a Star Wars family. I love Star Wars. And at first glance, you think, well, what makes Star Wars great? It's the lightsabers, it's the spaceships, it's the force, it's all that stuff. But it's actually the story about the redemptive power of love of a son for his father and how no one is too far gone. I actually have a big Darth Vader in my office. He's been in there for about 20 years as I go to different churches. And people are always like, why do you have Darth Vader in your office? And I say, hey, it's to remind myself that no one is too far gone to be redeemed by the love of Jesus. Amen. Jaws. You think it's about a shark and that great sound check, you know, do, 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 do. You know, it's good music. But actually, it's about a man who is trying to find his place in this world, and, and he's trying to make it work in this new town. And, and, and there's a scene very powerful with him and his son, and, and his son is imitating him, and he's feeling all this tension. That's really what the movie's about. That's why Jaws 1 is a great movie, and the rest of the Jaws movies are not great, because it's not just about a shark. It's about a family. It's about this husband who's trying to figure out, how do I make my way in the world and provide for my family and all this stuff? And, and the parable of the Good Samaritan is a lot like that story. I think everyone has probably heard the phrase, the Good Samaritan. Like, it's, it's on the news uh, back in Denver, our friends had their baby at the Good Samaritan Hospital. It's so penetrated our culture that I think we've really lost sight of what the Good Samaritan story is all about. 
In fact, there's this well-known Christian organization called Samaritan's Purse that uh, is missions to help people who are far, uh, uh, that need help. And that's awesome, but that's certainly not what Jesus' original audience would have thought of. Good Samaritan Hospital, Samaritan's Purse, all these, you know, the Good Samaritan who helps their neighbor in need when they first heard this story. And so I think a lot of us have misinterpreted this parable, actually. And I know, personally, I did for the longest time. And I heard this preached on, and I think perhaps we missed the real meaning of this story. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The parable of the Good Samaritan occurs in Luke 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Otherwise, I think we're going to have them here, up there. And uh, we're going to start a little bit before the parable starts, because we, we want to see parables in their original context. Otherwise, we really miss the story that Jesus is telling. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In this culture, the teacher would actually sit and the students would stand to ask a question. Um, But what we see here is actually the lawyer, he's standing to put Jesus into a test. He's actually wanting to test the teacher. Uh, An 11th century Arabic scholar named Ibn al-Talib notes that the lawyer didn't ask, how can I obey God, which is the natural question for someone to ask. He says, how can I inherit eternal life? And actually, this question is flawed. There's nothing you can do to inherit something. You simply inherit something by being in a family uh, or being adopted into it. That's how you receive an inheritance. Inheritance is not payment for services rendered. And so actually, the lawyer's question is flawed to begin with. But instead of answering that lawyer's question, he responds uh, with a question to him. And Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is something that probably Jesus has taught many, many times. It's known as the great commandment. Jesus was asked really to sum up the 613 Old Testament commandments. It was kind of a common question with rabbis. Hey, what's the most important question? Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this lawyer, he really sums up Jesus' teaching. He's like, yeah, you know, do this. And that's what the Bible says is, is the most important thing. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. So what is Jesus saying to this religious expert? That we can earn salvation to God? Well, Jesus is saying, if you can follow this perfectly, then you don't need grace. If you can love God perfectly with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you can love your neighbor perfectly, then yes. But Romans 7 tells us the problem isn't the law. The problem is that we can't obey it perfectly. See, that's what you need to do to receive eternal life. And so Jesus now is going to tell a story to help this man realize how far short he falls of that standard. And verse 29 here is the crux of the entire story here. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In order to justify himself— because what the lawyer wanted Jesus to say is, well, well, who's my neighbor? Well, it's your friends, your family, it's your country. Those are your neighbors. Because then the lawyer could say, done. You know, I, I love them. I love the Lord with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I, I love my countrymen. 
And then the, he, and then the crowd is going to be like, wow, this guy's really good. And that's, that's how the lawyer wants this to go down. He wants to justify himself. To be justified is this legal term that means you are granted the status of one who God declares innocent and righteous. It's, it's a legal term like a judge saying, hey, you are innocent. You are righteous. And that's what this man wants. He wants to justify himself. And you know what? I think you and I often do that as well. We want to justify ourselves. And I think in our modern 21st century, we do this primarily in one of two ways. Through hard religion or through soft religion. Through hard religion is those of us who maybe grew up in a Christian home. It's by trying to live up to some external standard. Saying, you know, I, I, don't, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't date girls who do. Anyone else grow up with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you only date good Christian girls. You don't do these bad things. There's this external standard. Hey, as long as I'm not doing these bad things, God will stay off my back and he's not going to discipline me. A lot of times we try to justify ourselves. It's like the parable of the prodigal sons. It's this is the older brother who's trying to do what's right, but he really doesn't have a relationship with his father. Or through soft religion. This is those who are trying to justify themselves some kind of internal standard. This is very popular nowadays. This is people who say, hey, we want to make poverty history. We want to end global warming. We just want to do what's right. Live your truth. That's what the, kind of that soft religion. It's, it's a lot of people in the suburbs, I think, they, that way too. They, they promote great social causes and say, oh, I'm going to justify myself through one of these two ways. But what Jesus is going to show them is it's impossible to justify yourself, whether through hard religion or through soft religion. That's what Jesus wants to teach this religious expert. And ultimately, each one of us, that we can't love God, we can't love others perfectly. It's an impossible standard. So Jesus is going to tell this amazing story, and you're going to see there's correlations between scene one and scene seven, scene two and six, and three and five with the main point coming in scene four. It's a common teaching that Middle Eastern rabbis would teach. So we're going to read at verse 30 now. And Jesus replied, he tells this great story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. The road from Jerusalem down to Jericho is about 17 miles long. Jerusalem's up on top of a mountain, so he had to descend about 3,500 feet through this kind of barren, rocky wilderness, and it's very dangerous. A lot of bayonets would be there attacking travelers. And so in scene one, we get this man who's traveling from Jerusalem down the mountain to uh, Jericho, and he gets beaten and robbed and left for dead. His only hope, really, is that someone from Jerusalem is going to come along and saves him. This is Jesus setting the scene, the conflict, the setting for our parable. And in scene two, we get a priest who comes along but doesn't offer help to him. In these in this days, uh, the role of priest was handed down from father to son. And the priestly families living in Jerusalem, a little different than the priests living in the smaller towns, they were known to be uh, wealthy families. This is like the kids who kind of go to high school in Minnetonka or Edina. Do you know what I mean? Th this is, these are those families. And so coming from a wealthy family, this priest most likely is not hiking down the road. Jesus' listeners would have assumed he's probably on a donkey or a camel, you know. He could have easily transported this man in his, you know, black Escalade with his leather seats. Uh, but the priest has a problem. See, in religious law, if a priest gets within six feet of a dead body 
And this priest doesn't know if this man is dead or alive. If he does, he'll be ritualistically unclean, and he's going to have to go back to Jerusalem and begin the rites of purification, which would require him to buy a cow, uh, turn that thing into ash, their sacrifice. It's going to take at least seven days. He'd have to sit at the eastern gate with everyone who'd sinned against God until another priest could purify him. He's going to feel the shame and guilt because he did this wrong thing by touching a dead body. He's going to be out a bunch of money because he's not going to be able to work for a week, which means not only is he going to suffer, his family's going to suffer. So it's not an easy predicament. And so this is, we don't want to judge the priest too harshly. This is why he sees this body. He's like, I don't know if it's dead or alive. If I touch it, I have to do all these other things. So, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to walk by. Because if the priest helps this man, then he's an outcast. He, he's unable to take care of his family and his friends. And so he kind of weighs the cost. And he's like, this is going to throw off my whole schedule. So, you know, I'm just going to not help this poor guy. So now we get to the third scene. And the, the Levite comes to, to help next. And Levite is kind of like the junior varsity for uh, the, the, the priest class, except for they're never getting bumped up to varsity. The Levites assisted the priests in the temple, but weren't in the same economic class as the priests. The Levite's probably walking. But here's the thing about this road. Uh, it, 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 you can probably see three or four miles ahead of you. And so most likely the Levite knew he's following behind this priest. And so as a good Levite, he's going to follow the example of the priest. And he's bound by the same ritualistic laws as the priest. And he knows if he touches the dead body, then he's going to have to go do all these things too. And so as he realizes, well, the priest didn't stop to help this man, well, then I'm probably not going to either. It's not like I have my dual exhaust camel that I can put him on. I'm probably walking. He's like, I take care of my family. And so he just passes by this man. Side note, this is why it's so important for those of us in leadership. So people are watching us. And when we walk by a piece of trash in the parking lot, whether it's at our job or at our church or wherever, the people that are following us as leaders are going to notice that. So goes the leader, so goes the culture of an organization, whether you're a manager, whether you're leading a baseball team as an assistant coach, whatever that might be, that people who are underneath us in leadership, they're constantly watching us. And so this Levite watches what the priest does and says, well, you know what? I'm not going to outshine him. I'm just going to do exactly what the priest does. And so he just passes him by. Now there's a third uh, important detail that you need to know, and perhaps this is maybe what you have not heard before in the temple in Jerusalem was served by three classes of people. There were the priests, there was the Levites, and then there's the ordinary lay people helping out with different tasks. These are the people who, they're helping out in the greeting team, they're, they're making coffee, they're holding babies in the nursery, just the kind of average volunteers in the temple. And so as Jesus is telling this parable, and he's mentioning the priests, which is like the pastors, the staff, and the Levites, this is like the elders or the small group leaders, and the people listening to the story is like, ah, I know where Jesus is going with this story. All right, so the pastor is not the hero of the story, and, and the, the elders in the church aren't the hero of the story. It's going to be the everyday, ordinary people. That's the hero of the story. So like if I was telling the story, like, yeah, like I go by, and there's a man outside lane, and I pass him by, you know, and then Sam or Holly, whoever, they see me do the same thing. Like, I'm going to pass by. I'm not going to do it either. And then, you know, maybe just one of ordinary volunteers here, you stop it, and you're the one that's going to help the person. That's what Jesus' audience, that's what they're expecting to hear. Well, Jesus then throws them the biggest curveball ever. He says, but a Samaritan, what a Samaritan? As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. She says, a Samaritan, like scene four, explodes in the faces of Jesus' listeners. They're expecting it to be just the everyday, ordinary Jewish person, you know, not the religious priests or the Levites. But instead, it's a hated outsider, a religious heretic, possibly a terrorist in their mind. This is like Jesus sharing the parable of the good ISIS fighter. That's what this is like. It's like the parable of uh, the good whatever fill in your political persuasion that you think that person on the opposite side, you know, um, is. That's how scandalous this was when Jesus is telling that story. See, the Samaritans, they were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half-pagan. When Israel was, went into exile, these are the men who, and women who married their captives. They had children. Their descendants were the Samaritans. They had their own temple. They didn't go to Jerusalem. There was actually a common prayer in the synagogue in these days asking God, please, God, don't give grace and forgiveness to the Samaritans. Can you imagine if Sam's up here leading worship and is like, God, thank you, give us grace and peace, but you know, those people who live out in Brooklyn Center, don't give them any grace or peace or mercy today. Like, what? That's what they prayed back then. In fact, there were, you could say like they would pray that God would you know, smash the head of the Samaritans. Uh, many Jewish men would pray, God, thank you for not making me a woman. Thank you for not making me a Samaritan. <laughs> like, praise Jesus. Like, that's the culture in these days. And so you can see there's not a lot of love lost between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people. And he's not a Gentile. He's bound by the same ritualistic laws as the Levite and priests, but he's moved by compassion. And so when the Samaritan gets off his animal and helps this man, befriends this man, he shows compassion to the man, he's actually put himself at great risk. He's let himself be seen, be known. He assumes the risk. First of all, it's a dangerous area. He doesn't know if this is a trick that the other robbers are going to come beat him. In fact, he doesn't know there's a chance that he could be helped this Jewish man, and then some other Jewish people would come down, and they would think that the Samaritan was the one who caused this man to be beaten, and then he could be held in court and be strung up. So he's risking himself. But in scene five, the good Samaritan treats the wounds which corresponds to the failure of the Levite, the small group leader, the elder who doesn't stop to help and give first aid. And then in scene six, he transports this man to safety on his animal, which corresponds to the failure of the priest or the pastor, refusing to pull over and help this man. And then in the final scene, he brings the beaten man to an inn and offers to pay for his lodging. He puts himself at risk. Hey, whatever his future expenses are, hey, I'm going to pay for these. Not only is the Samaritan risking his life, he's getting dirty, he's destroying his own schedule, he's giving sacrificial of his money, and he's doing this for a sworn enemy. Why would Jesus share such a radical example? Why would Jesus tell this story? Well, I believe that Jesus is showing us that the mark of a heart that has been touched by the grace of God will be led to do deeds of compassion to the neediest, the most broken, and even the most ungrateful. That's a hard one. Those that are far away from us demographically, physically, socially, economically. See, real love is costly. Real love is extreme. When we're called to love our neighbors, to love God, it's costly. It's going to cost you your schedule. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money. It's extreme. 
It's going to cause people in your life to say, why would you do that? Why would you bring some foster kids into your family? Don't you know how that messes it up and it's harder to take vacations now? Yep. <laughs> why would you volunteer at VBS with those stinky, smelly kids? Yeah, it's going to cost me something. Why, instead of taking your normal vacation to Turks and Caicos, why would you take your family down to Mexico to help build an orphanage? The people at your work, they're not going to understand. But see, those of us who've been touched by Jesus, we understand that real love is costly, that real love is extreme. But see, these good deeds, we don't do them to save us, but we are saved to do good deeds. Jesus is teaching us that the way we treat people, particularly those of other races and those that are most different from us and the cost is to help, shows if we are self-justified or if we understand that we are sinners saved by grace. See, the kind of love that comes out of a sinner saved by grace is depicted in this little story of Jesus with a big idea. And that kind of love that is displayed in this story has a huge impact on this religious leader. And so Jesus asks the man, which of these three, the pastor, the church elder, (laughs) the ISIS fighter, (laughs) do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. The lawyer can't even say the word Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, you go and do Likewise, Jesus is trying to show us that until you've been crushed and convicted by the magnitude of the love required of us, you won't be humbled enough to receive the love that Jesus offers in the gospel. But see, this kind of love, we are incapable of receiving it on our own. You and I aren't good enough to love like this. This standard is impossible for us to rise up to. We're too broken. We're too flawed. See, the reality, the main point of this parable that I've missed so many times before when I, when I would hear this story, it's like, go be like the Good Samaritan. And you try and you try to live up to the standard and you realize you're broken, you're flawed, you can't. See, the reality is actually we are like the man lying beaten in the road, helpless to save ourselves. The only way that we can be saved is that someone would come and rescue us. See, before you can be a good neighbor, you need, you need a good neighbor. You need Jesus to neighbor you. Until you come to the place where you recognize your own failings and your need to be rescued and redeemed and the need to have someone else justify you, you need to reach out to the great Samaritan who didn't just risk his life for us, but he laid down his life for us. He doesn't just show mercy and compassion, but he comes to where we are in the midst of our hurt and our pain, and he gives everything to you and I. That is the story of the gospel, that we can't save ourselves, whether it's trying to some external hard religion standard up here or some internal standard of just do right, do good to get God. No, the message of the story isn't do good, get God. It's God did good for you so that you can get to him. And so until we realize the magnitude of the mess that we are in and that we cannot save ourselves, we're never going to be like the good Samaritan. Until you see Jesus as the great Samaritan, you're never going to be a good Samaritan. And I think part of the reason we gather together in worship is to remind ourselves we can't save ourselves. 
But the message of grace says we are broken, we are flawed, and Jesus comes to us in our hurt and our pain, and he binds up our hurts, he binds up our, our weaknesses, he carries us to safety. He says, hey, whatever future costs they have, I'm going to pay it. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just pay for all your sins in the past, he pays for all your sins in the future. It is all covered. It is all paid for. You and I live in the reality that we walk in newness of life, of grace and forgiveness all your sins, all the ways you don't rise up to that standard of perfect love for God and perfect love for others. It has been covered by Jesus, the great Samaritan who gave his life for us. So the parable of the good Samaritan really gives us two truths here. The first is each of us can never measure up to the perfect standard that God requires. We're like the man lying on the road left for dead. We cannot justify ourselves. We cannot be good enough to save ourselves. And when we start to think that we are, that's when we are filled with pride and arrogance and we become like the priest and the Levite just stepping out of the way of that brokenness, that mess. I don't need to get involved in that. But when we realize, no, I'm a sinner in need of God's grace and every day we wake up, God, thank you that you saved me. Thank you that you redeemed me. Thank you that you've healed me. And in spite of my anxiety and depression, in spite of my, my temptation towards greed or bitterness or busyness, Jesus, you come in and you rescue me and you save me and you cleanse me and you redeem me. And God, thank you for that. And we live in light of that joy of the gospel that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We are lying in that road and Jesus came and he rescued us and he neighbored us. But then Jesus calls us to live like the Good Samaritan to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to love as he loved, to serve as he served, to go where he went. The order here is important. Jesus said, what is the most important commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That has to come first. Second is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Because when we swap those, what happens is we serve we, we, we give to that family member who's in need. We serve back in kids' ministry week after week after week. We, we do all these things, and then bitterness creeps in because we're trying to do it out of a place of, of our own strength instead of flowing out of that relationship with God the Father first. See, I don't know hardly anything about cars, but I've been told that an internal combustion engine is basically a series of controlled explosions. And see, if we're going to drive the car forward of our faith, our life, of our church, we need those internal explosions of love connecting us to God the Father. That is why it's important to come together and worship, to sing these songs, these words of like, wow, I am so lost and broken. The reckless love of God, he comes down, he leaves the 99 for me. How amazing is that? We open God's word to say, wow, how amazing that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation to each and every one of us. And when we are driven by that, by, and we come together and we preach the gospel to one another, and we say, man, you are saved and you are redeemed and you are healed and you are called and you are chosen and you are my brother and sister and together we are forgiven and we are adopted into the family of God. How amazing is that? Those are those little explosions of love that drive us forward to then go love our neighbors, to do this kind of love that is modeled to us by the story of the Good Samaritan. But we have to first be driven by the explosions of our connection to God the Father, be driven by that need of love. And so I urge you and I beg you, as, you, as a church, you step into this new chapter, 
Start your day with God's word. Read those stories of the gospels. Read the stories of how Jesus took time to reach out. And one of my favorite stories is he's on the way to a, a little girl, 12 years old, who, who's dying. And the father there is, he's like, come on, my little girl's dying. And then in the midst of a crowd, someone reaches out and touches Jesus. And a woman who, for 12 years, the same amount of time this little girl's been alive, she's been bleeding. And you know what that means in that culture? That means no one has touched her. She can't go into worship because she's ceremoniously unclean. She's not received a hug in 12 years. She's not worshiped with God's people in 12 years. She spent everything she has. She reaches out, she touches Jesus, and in that instant, she's healed. And Jesus says, who touched me? And it's the only place in the Bible he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He calls her daughter because she doesn't have a good daddy like Jairus who's waiting there for Jesus to come heal his daughter. And then they find out Jairus has died, but Jesus says, it's okay. And he goes and he raises that little girl to life. And Jesus takes time for the woman who's been bleeding and is unclean. He takes time for the little girl and he heals and he redeems. That is what love is like. There's a story in the book of Acts as I wrap up here where Paul and Silas, they're talking about this love that is life-changing. It's earth-shattering. It breaks all society's categories and it's very, it's very uh, aggressive to the Roman Empire and they're messing everything up and so they're put in prison. And like, just like us for the last year, they're, they're, they're in chains and they're in bondage and they're praying and they're singing and then God sends an earthquake and their chains fall off and if it was me, I'd run out that door really fast. And the jailer who's there, he's getting ready to kill himself because he knows he's responsible for these prisoners. But Paul says, hey, no, no, we haven't left yet. He's like, what? Let me tell you about Jesus. And that night, that jailer takes him to his house and he binds up their wounds. And Paul tells him about the life-changing power of Jesus that anyone can be saved, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, and this man and his whole family get saved. That's what love is. Because sometimes it's not about us. Sometimes we're praying, God, free us from this thing that we've been in and, and the chains and, and, and they fall off. And if it was me, I'd think, okay, I'm, I'm out the door now. But instead, that earthquake wasn't about just releasing those chains. That earthquake was about that man, that jailer, and his whole family coming to know the love of Jesus. And so sometimes you're in something and you're praying for it. But the answer isn't just about you. It's about how God is going to use you to bring salvation and healing to someone else. These last five years as a church planner, just had some crazy stories. Uh, had this instance where uh, someone had been coming to our church for a while, and, and finally one day he says, hey, pastor, uh, would you come with me? I need to break up my mistress. Uh, he'd been married for a number of years and had someone on the side, and, and so we said, okay, I can help you with this. So he picks me up, and we drive, and, and I said, where are we meeting her? Well, at the hotel. Well, what does she think? you're meeting her there for well, what we normally do. Oh, okay, this is brand new. I'm going to teach you this in seminary. And so uh, she comes to the door, and I'm standing there, and she's like, what? And so uh, we have this conversation. He says, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I love my wife. And I'm able to tell her, hey, you're not defined by this. Jesus loves you. It's not with this man. That's not the plan, but God still loves you and has a plan for your life. That's what love looks like. When someone reaches out, to me in a halfway house addicted to heroin and drugs and you start a relationship and you invite them into your family and they're in your small group for a year and then he falls off the wagon and how do you find someone uh, a place to dry out on Memorial Day weekend and 
how do you love their family? And then he gets cleaned up and he's raising his boys and then he dies tragically this last January in a work accident. But real love is then helping their boys and telling them that their father's in heaven and bringing them back down to Maple Grove because they're up north and getting them on a baseball team with my son. And real love is costly and it's saying, hey, make sure he's on our team. And I help coach their team. And, and real love is seeing that that young man makes a new best friend on that team. And this family doesn't have a church and we're spiritually disconnected and now they're coming and they're excited to be a part of our church. That's what real love is. I don't tell these stories to lift my, myself up because I'm not your pastor and I don't care what you think of me. But real love is costly. Real love is extreme. But the only way you're able to live these things out is when you start first by connected to God. And as a church, you need to start with that connected love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Spend that time with prayer refilling your soul. Take long walks and pray to Jesus. Listen to worship music. Journal. Figure out the spiritual practices that, practices that are going to help you connect with God. Like for me, that, uh, having a gratitude journal, starting my day, listening to three things I'm thankful for every single day. Just it's, it's those little explosions of love that are going to draw us forward. Thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity to go fishing with my friend Casey on Friday night. Thank you, Jesus, for going to my friend Amber's house and swimming in her pool. We got, it's good to have good friends who have those things. You know, thank you, Jesus, for your love and for your grace. It's reading the Gospels and reading about Jesus. And when you start your day that way, then you can have the strength to love your kids when they're being wild and crazy. Then you can volunteer and serve as, as a baseball coach for kids who are squirrely and maybe they lost their dad or they're going through different things. But we can't love our neighbors around us on our own strength. We have to first be connected to the love of God in Christ Jesus that was shown on the cross that said, hey, you and I, we are saved, forgiven, redeemed, called, chosen, adopted into God's family. Would you pray with me? I'm going to invite the band to come up. God, I thank you for your love that was poured out on the cross for us. You saw us like that man in the story, helpless to save ourselves, and so you sent your son, Jesus, to heal, to bind up our wounds, to save us. God, I pray for this church as they start their new chapter next week with Pastor Rich. God, I pray for a fresh energy and vision. They would go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that you've commanded us. And God, I pray that they would love you with all of their heart, soul, mind and strength. God, I pray for those in this room who have felt disconnected. They've felt a weariness over this last year, uh, depression, anxiety. God, I, I want them to know they're not alone. God, that they're not broken. God, I pray, I pray right now they just feel your love. They would feel that you are with us. And you call us sons and daughters. 
You call us your children, saved, redeemed, healed, forgiven, adopted, chosen. And God, as that message gets in our heart, like little explosions, God, I pray you would propel us forward to love our neighbors, to get to know our neighbors. God, I pray for those in this room, maybe they've been feeling a stirring in their hearts to do something, but they've been holding back because it feels costly, it feels extreme. God, you would move them to take that step of faith inspired by your love for us, by your example of showing us costly, extreme love by coming here on earth and dying for us and then rising again. So God, I pray that this week we would just feel the fullness of your love and that as we are filled by you, God, then that we would go out and we would love our neighbors as ourselves. We would show this kind of love that was mild to us by Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.